Thank you. Thank you for letting me speak with you all this morning. Um, so before we dive in, would you guys just pray with me? Lord, I ask that your wisdom and your truth would resound this morning. And I pray that you would be glorified and that as we learn more about you and your love um, and your joy that you offer us through your word and salvation, we'd be made more like you. Lord, I pray that this would be about you. In your name, amen. A while back, uh, I was talking with an individual who was in the middle of making a pretty big life decision. Uh, they were deciding whether or not they were going to stay with the commitment that they had made or to back out. And they had decided to uh, back out of that commitment. And when I asked them a little bit more as to why, they were like, well, I'm just not happy. And I don't think God wants me to be unhappy, so I don't think this is God's will for my life. I was a little frustrated by that, but as I began to reflect on my own life, I recognized that I've often had the same thought pattern in my own. I've allowed feelings of unhappiness and happiness to direct and drive my life. I've let the desire of happiness be the end goal in my life and then based my decisions and relationships and actions on what will produce the most happiness and comfort. Now the desire for happiness and the feeling of sadness, they're both real. They're created emotions. If you feel happy in a certain job, it might be an indicator that you found your niche and that you're using your talents and it's fulfilling. If you feel sad in a certain job, it might be an indicator that something's wrong with the environment, maybe your attitude. Our feelings are meant to serve as indicators of things that are going on, but our feelings are terrible masters. And when happiness is our master, it becomes our end goal and we become fixated on what we think will make us happy. So much so that I think we miss out on the joys around us and we find ourselves with high expectations, deep disappointment and greater unhappiness. There was an article this summer in Palladium Magazine that said that 71% of college students report feeling very sad. 71%. And it just like made my heart sink. It's such an alarming number. So why are we so unhappy? And I do want to acknowledge that I think that mental health complexities and diagnosed depression might be a contributing factor for some of these um, reported sadnesses. And while I don't want to dismiss that as a real experience, I also know that this morning I won't be able to do justice to the individual stories and complexities of experiences of depression. And so for this talk, I do want to focus more on other influences that might be contributing to these feelings of unhappiness. So after reflecting on my own life and talking with those around me, I want to address four factors that I think are contributing to overwhelming feelings of sadness. And there's probably a lot more, but if I've looked at myself, I think these four have been just the most prominent. First off, I think that we have to address the fact that we experience sadness because of brokenness. The reality is that we live in a broken world where difficulty, loss, sin, and grief abound. 
And sometimes our sadness acknowledges that this is not the way it was supposed to be. And it points to a need for a great redeemer who will wipe every tear from our eyes. But sometimes when we are so fixated on gaining happiness while also experiencing great sadness, we end up denying ourselves the space to truly lament places of loss and wrongdoing, which I think sometimes prolongs the experience of sadness and feelings of hopelessness. I've been in this job for seven plus years and I've walked alongside friends and students every year that have gone through tremendous loss, pain and grief. And I just wanna say that I see you and I'm so sorry. But beyond that, God sees you. And he says that he is well acquainted with your grief and with your sadness. And he is not asking you to slap a smile on your face, but to trust him and hope in him with your sorrow and with your sadness. And then the second reason I think that we have these overwhelming feelings of sadness is that happiness has become our end goal of our lives instead of the kingdom. And I talked about this earlier, but the desire for happiness is not wrong, right? It's created within us. But when that feeling of happiness becomes our end goal, it leads to idolatry and it becomes our master, leading our desires, our thoughts, our actions and relationships towards what will make us the most happy and the most comfortable. When happiness is my end goal, it becomes the metric by which I evaluate whether or not God is fair and loving. If I'm happy, then God is fair and loving. If I'm not, then God is not. And this summer, that was particularly true. There were just a couple of weeks that were really hard. And one week in particularly, I was just struggling with unmet expectations, stress, fear. I was supposed to go visit my family um, that I hadn't seen in several months. Casey got COVID, it kind of delayed our plans. Then my dad had to have this unexpected surgery. He couldn't be exposed to COVID, so our time with him got cut even shorter. I just felt really frustrated. And I remember thinking, does God really care for me? I feel like he's being really unfair. In my head, I thought God owed me happiness because I was pursuing him and trying to obey him. And I realized that instead of Christ and his kingdom being my end goal, my happiness was. And my fixation on my version of happiness prevented me from recognizing other blessings and places of joy and being thankful that I got to even see my family at all, which some people don't get to do very often. And when the need for happiness rules my life, experiences of sadness and disappointment grow. But when Christ and his kingdom rules my life, I'm able to feel sad when there are legitimate disappointments, but I'm not left feeling hopeless or like God doesn't care. I think the third reason that we feel sad is that we are focused on ourselves. I know this for myself, but when I am turned inward, I cramp up. I fixate on all of the things that are not the way I want them to be. When we focus on ourselves, we look to ourselves for happiness, creating unrealistic expectations that increase pressure, perfectionism, and disappointment. And when we focus on ourselves, we overvaluate every part of ourselves, noticing every weakness, every flaw, 
We then start to compare ourselves to others and fear for our likability, which leads to self-consciousness and insecurity. When I first got married, I found myself comparing myself to Casey all the time. And instead of noticing and thanking God for all the gifts that he possessed, I saw them as threats to my identity and to my self-worth. And I, when I would dwell on the fact that I thought he was a better teacher and speaker, musician, and at that time, pickleball player, <laughs> I found myself losing joy in those areas. And it became pouty and sad. And then come to find out, he was doing the same thing about me, you know, wishing he had my wit, my baking abilities, and my limbo skills. <laughs> and all that to say, comparison is silly. Like, it robs us of joy. It actually puts a wedge in our relationships rather than drawing us closer to each other to learn from and to benefit from the gifts and talents of others. We weren't designed to turn inward. We're made to stand up and look out to celebrate the gifts and talents of others and learn from them, that's what brings joy. And I think the fourth contributing factor to our unhappiness is we feel lonely. According to recent data in a CDC survey, 61% of young adults report feeling serious loneliness. Why are we so lonely and unhappy? And there's a reality that sometimes there are just seasons of loneliness that we're gonna walk through that feel very much outside of our control. I know I've walked through them, I know some of you have, and it's hard. But I've also seen the Lord use it to deepen me and to give me eyes to see others in their loneliness, which leads me to learn how to be a better friend. I think we're lonely because we just came out of a pandemic which prolonged periods of isolation, which I think can lead to some of our social muscles feeling atrophied, making it difficult um, for us to put forth the effort of making conversation or pursuing people. It's easier for us to just be alone. And I think if I'm honest, sometimes we are lonely because we are selfish. I know this to be true for myself. We look to our own interests and we look to our community to fill us and know us perfectly instead of looking to the interests of others. We find ourselves desiring to be liked over a desire to love others. And we become discontent and restless in the community that we are given. But we have to remember that friendships and community, they take time, they take effort. We can have this unrealistic expectation that a true and worthwhile community should just happen instantaneously. But I think this idea prolongs loneliness and it cheats us out of potential deep and transformative community and joy that is around us. So now that we've identified, I think some of these factors that are contributing to feelings of unhappiness, what do we do? What do I do if I am unhappy. And I think we have to begin by acknowledging it, by not stuffing it, name it. And I think it's wise for us to seek mentorship and counseling to process through it. But along with those things, we have to go to the word. And so for the remainder of our time, I want to explore what the word says, what it speaks into, 
in regards to this. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn to John chapter 15, starting in verse 9. And that's John chapter 15, looking at verse 9. So follow along with me. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus tells his disciples to abide in his love and obey his commandments because of joy. And what's his command? It's to love one another as I have loved you. Jesus desiring us to experience joy and experience it to the brim is so radical because I think we have this perception that Jesus wants us to feel solemn and miserable continually contemplative, mulling over our sin. But Jesus is a party. I mean, he is the author of joy. His commands are not to be just fun suckers, but they're actually to be joy givers. They're protectors. They draw our eyes up to the kingdom so that we might experience life and life abundantly. And guys, his command is simple and beautiful. It's to love one another. And so if we read on, verses 12 through 17, it says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Loving others does not guarantee happiness, but loving others does speak into all the factors of sadness that we discussed earlier. It gives way to deep joy. Happiness is not the end goal. It's not the reason that we obey God and love others. But joy, which is far lasting and filled with hope, is a result of pursuing him and his kingdom. But all of this means nothing if we do not first understand this, that God loved us first. And we won't experience this joy to the fullest of loving others without first knowing the significance of Christ's love for us. He laid down his life for us. He chose us as friends. He made us with a purpose to bear fruit and bring the kingdom here on earth. His example teaches us how we ought to position our hearts and our actions towards him and to others. And as we look at this passage, I think we can experience the joy found in a love that lays down one's life, that chooses others, and that bears fruit. So number one, loving others means that we lay down our life. Sacrificial love does not mean that we try to be savior to all of our friends, pointing them to ourselves to fill their needs and ours. 
It means that we do everything we can to procure their good by pointing them to a savior who can meet their needs. It means that we put aside our ideas and expectations of what our friends and community should be in order to love those who have been placed before us. It means loving others even if you don't feel like it. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So what does that look like practically? Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down their phone or video game controller to ask someone how they're doing. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down their comfort and energy to invite someone, invite someone outside their friend group to sit at their table. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down their me time to bear a burden and pray with someone who is hurting and in need. Greater love has no one than this, that someone give up their desire to be liked in order to call a friend out of unhealthiness and sin. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down their pride to hang out with someone who is different or not as cool. And that doesn't mean that we go, down, go around thinking that we're the cool kid lovingly asking the less fortunate to hang out because that person who accepts your invitation might be thinking the same thing about you. We love each other, not merely out of duty and pity, but because we have been loved and we are designed to love others and living out of our design produces joy. Number two, loving others means choosing one another because they have been chosen for you. In his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis writes, in friendship, we think we have chosen our peers. In reality, a few years difference in the dates of our births or a few more miles between certain houses, the choice of one university instead of another, the accident of a topic being raised or not raised at a first meeting, any of these chances might have kept us apart. But for a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. A secret master of ceremonies has been at work, Christ, who said to the disciples, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, ye have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. The friendship is not a reward for our discriminating and good taste in finding one another out, it is the instrument by which God reveals to each of us the beauties of others. We have the opportunity to be content and to choose wisely. For some of us, we need to be content with the people that God has given to us. I think sometimes we have this idea that if we choose rightly, we will create this type of utopian community that will meet all of our needs. But sometimes Christ chooses people for us for a purpose. Many of you didn't choose your hall unless you bribed admissions. So perhaps you're placed on a hall with individuals that don't really share some of the same interests or they don't really get you. And there's great temptation when we feel this way to give up and to check out and continually look for other people to fill certain expectations and desires. We want people who are gonna be the most fun, who will take the least effort, who will have no conflict. And I'm not saying that every friend group is healthy. Sometimes we have to choose our friends wisely and that means letting go of certain relationships that lead us into sin. But on the whole, I wonder if instead of constantly looking at what we could have, we looked for ways to pour it into the community we've been given, even if it's just a season. 
Instead of waiting for people to pursue us, what if we knocked on doors and asked others to hang out? Instead of waiting for people to just get us and know us well, what if we asked questions to get to know them well? Instead of comparing ourselves to others, what if we affirmed others and chose to practice gratitude for the gifts and talents that they possess and that we get to learn from? When we choose those who have been given to us, we will find ourselves more joyful and content instead of restlessly shopping for a community to perfectly satisfy us, which doesn't exist. And this leads to my last point, that love bears fruit. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. The world tells you that true love is a love that is easy and makes you happy. But according to this passage, love takes work. It's meant to produce fruit. It's meant to add to the kingdom and that produces joy. And this doesn't mean that your friendships can't be mutually enjoyable and fun. But if all we do is just chill, you know, if our groups and our friendships are revolving around drama and gossip, sexual jokes, partying, trashy TV shows, and hours of gaming, I can't help but wonder if it stunts our growth and capacity to experience the great depths and joy of relationships that bear fruit. When I was in college, uh, when my friends and I were bored, or there was a lull in conversation, we'd sit around and one of us would look at each other and be like, so, who do you like? <laughs> and it's not a bad question, right? We can talk about those things, but if it's the only question we're talking about, it's worth expanding our arsenal of questions. <laughs> there are so many more conversations that we could have that would build depth and bear fruit. And I know it's not just the ladies. I've, I know that, men. <laughs> we are created. Yes. I, I hear all. I hear all. We are created for relationships that will bring the kingdom here on earth and produce fruit for all to benefit from. And when we live into that design, there is great joy to be experienced. So what do we do when we are unhappy? The reality is that feelings of unhappiness and sadness are a part of this life and this side of heaven. But when we follow the example Christ has laid out for us and love as he loves, when we lay down our life, choose others and bear fruit, we can't help but experience his joy in us, even in the midst of unhappiness. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you that we have the hope of restoration and joy in you. And so would you help us now? Lord, if there is sadness, would you sow joy? Where there is pain, would you bring healing? And Lord, would you teach us how to love you as you have loved us? And may our joy be found in you. Amen.